It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Hanging in there. Nice. Um, have you ever heard of the languages of love? You mean like the romance languages? No. Like French, Italian, Spanish? Spanish. Yeah, no. All the etymologically derivative of Latin languages? No, no. Although, yeah, I think if people are confused about what that word means, romance, when referring to those languages. But no, I'm talking about a book that, I don't know, it's kind of kind of swept the nation a couple of years ago hmm. by this guy Gary Chapman and he postulated that there were five ways in which people express love. Is it uh, an erection? <laughs> um, I, I mean, that's the only one I know. <laughs> um, no, actually he was trying to reach beyond that. And I, the book went around and I think there was a lot of boyfriends that were forced to read this book. Um, as was I, I didn't, I didn't get all the way through it. Um, which is, you know, says a lot about my, uh, relationship actually. But yeah, so he, he postulated. You only know like two or three languages. Yeah, a couple. I mean, I know about a couple of them. I figured out who I was anyway. Um, so there's, there's basically five, he says there's five ways to express love. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Okay. And each so person... So podcasting fulfills like at least four of those. At least four of those. Just we're not phys- touching yet. Yeah, nobody's... We're not touching any of our guests or our... <laughs> or each other. <laughs> or our listeners, frankly. But um, we could start with just the two of us. But um, anyhow, the thing is, is that people... He postulated that people prefer one... They, they have a dominant one in their lives. So okay. you decide like which one yours is. And then if you can understand which ones your mates are, then you can have a better relationship hmm. by understanding that your, your mate needs words of affirmation, Got it. which can be alien to you because you're an acts of service guy. Right. Right. And so you never think of, of giving words of affirmation because they don't mean shit to you. Right. Right. And so, I mean, I actually literally just basically describe my relationship with stuff. So anyhow, uh, moving on. But- How- how do you um, do that with an erection? <laughs> well, <laughs> unless you're on the pill, I mean, <laughs> you know, you just wait for it to go down. <laughs> so I think I have discovered the sixth language of love. Okay. Which is beta. Beta? Beta. Like climbing beta. Climbing beta is the sixth language of okay. love. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that it's the way in which climbers express their love for one another. All right. This is going to be a fraught topic. <laughs> I There's this whole discourse around beta sharing that has been extremely negative mm-hmm. in the last few mm-hmm. years. Um, I think mansplaining is the probably the key word that comes to mind. Right. As a mansplainer, you're trying to... Um, dodge and duck your way out of the, these accusations by turning it into an expression of love. Exactly. Now, first of all, I want to note that that was our original title for this podcast was mansplaining, <laughs> mansplaining climbing. Um, we, we threw that out, but, uh, 
Because that's basically all we do. Um, no, what I what I'm I I, I want to reframe beta is what I'm getting at. I want to reframe. I mean, giving beta, even giving unsolicited beta. Okay. Because you're right. It's like it is basically the kind of meanest, most hurtful thing you could possibly do in a climbing gym is to just spray beta at somebody who supposedly didn't want it. Right. But the thing that I noticed was, or I've noticed is that it, it's it's like a it's such this found, indoors and outdoors it's such this foundational part of how we interact mm-hmm. that I think it, I think we're we're reading it wrong I think we're because let me give you a couple examples I mean I, I I've stood in the gym you know bouldering next to somebody like for an awkward fifteen minutes silently sort of going about our business and then suddenly finally one one person cracks and either asks for beta or gives some beta and it's like this little floodgate opens and then we start talking right and and i know everyone has had that experience yeah because what the fuck else are you going to talk about to to initiate a conversation you know there is this thing you can do which is to talk about the beta on anything right and you can ask for it, which is a, a, a way of expressing that that you you feel as though this person might have some expertise for you. So that's like a, a nice way to give them almost a compliment, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like the whole idea that you can't go into a climbing gym, climb, and then we're all not supposed to like talk to each other about the climbing. Yeah. Is, are there other sports that are like that? It's crazy. And I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I, I, I mean, because this, uh, you know, the, the idea of like talking beta with people or sharing beta or telling, even telling them like what you do or telling them right. what they're doing wrong, right? Like, which could be an objectively true observation that's not a commentary on their skills or as a climber. It's just like an, you're saying you're doing the beta wrong and, and I'm going to tell you about it. Like all of that has been kind of made uh, too toxic to, you know, to entertain. And so because I'm so aware of that, I I find myself so reticent to ever engage in that, those kinds of conversations. And, um, and, and and here's the thing, like I'm biting my tongue all the time. And therefore you aren't talking to anyone about anything. Yes. You're you're not going to talk about Barbenheimer. Right. Or whatever, like, or at least you're not going to initiate. I mean, it's it's just a way to initiate a conversation with somebody. Yeah, and I, and the fundamental thing is that we all know that, but you have this one experience where you were in a mood and somebody sprayed bait at you and it pissed you off. Yeah, okay, like it's still for the most part the way we interact with each other. And I have another example. You know, I was just in Majorca and I was we were at this deep. Deep, very popular deep water soloing venue, Calabarcus. And, you know, right as we were leaving, this guy showed up. You know, there was all these other Gumbies there and tourists and shit. But I right away, I was like, okay, he's a climber. I see by his gear. He's with, with his, his uh, partner, um, a woman. And he had this little piece of paper with like some scribbles on it. Uh-huh. And he was like looking around. Didn't, you know, I, I think he was actually... Um, not Spanish, but we, and so like, 
I walked by him and then I turned to him and I said, Hey, are you a climber? And, you know, he kind of said, yeah. And we, and then we started speaking in kind of Spanish together. And the first thing he did was ask me like, Oh, have you climbed here? Like, what did, what did you do today? Right. And so it was like this whole thing, like we just connected on beta because mm-hmm. he asked me like, what did you climb? And I looked at his piece of paper and I was like, Oh yeah, I did this and it's good and blah, blah, you know, yeah. like that's like how we connected. And I was not going to walk by that guy and then turn to him and be like, Hey, have you seen any good movies lately? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it started making me think about that of like, we don't have to like demonize this initiation of a conversation as, as being an attack. It, it's no more of an attack as like, Hey, what's up? You know? Well, so I there's, don't know. there, because, I think, I think that there's right. this, um, I mean, the, the, I think this gets us into, you know, like gendered territory because uh-huh. men, men, I think are probably generally more prone to have conversations that revolve around telling each other what to do. You know, like that's how we, that's kind of how we communicate as men. Like we, and, it, and I think that women rightly and perhaps sometimes wrongly feel like that, that kind of communication is like this subtle way of making a commentary on what we like think about their skills or value as people. Right. Um, and so there's a a mismatch. There's a, there's a a way in which something that could be just genuine, uh, attempt to communicate and connect with someone could be interpreted in a way that, you know, belies those intentions and is, is interpreted in a way that's like negative. Right. And I think there's, certainly examples of you know men being dicks who feel like they're superior to women and are using the language of beta to convey that right that is also true but yeah that totally does, yeah but that that doesn't i think that doesn't that shouldn't um take away from the truth of what you're trying to get at here yeah i just i, I like i said i i, I kind of want to like just reframe it a little bit right you know in that and 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 there's also this other thing that that you know we have we were just talking to Colin Haley recently and we were talking about this you know the idea that like the purest form is to never talk about your climbing right and you go into the mountains and you come back and you never say any you know the spray right like you never spray and we kind of came across the truth that that's not actually it's it doesn't exist for one thing, but it's also not really true. Yeah. Because we, again, we have this language with which we communicate. And one of the things that we do is we say, Hey, what have you been doing lately? Right. You know, and we want to, and so it's like, it's like these ideals don't match with the way we actually operate. And I think I'd like to swing the pendulum back just a little bit away from like everybody just grimly tight lipped sitting in the gym watching everyone fail Mm -hmm. because that's not actually what goes on and you yeah you know i i I, I, like i've always said like you you want attention from somebody i mean when we're you know this whole gender thing like when you're in a climbing gym like we all know that for younger people it's also sort of a place to meet potential people to date i mean that's just the way it is it's like a bar or whatever and you only ever get mad when you get the attention from someone you don't want the attention from. Right. But this, 
the 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 guy or girl that you you want the attention from they spray baby at it you and they're like being nice yeah because they fixed what you were doing wrong so it's like but in the the fundamental thing is that's what we do as climbers beta is a language of love right yeah i i am on board with like 75 percent of that <laughs> i think that there's just like 25 percent of beta not being about love and more mm-hmm. being about kind of one-upsmanship and sure. stuff and and yeah I, I i do think it's a minority of you know the beta sprain but it, it kind of it's the one bad apple that ruins the bunch it like swallows the discourse and it's made us so fearful to talk to each other about or just let you know share share that kind of information you know openly to people that we haven't talked to otherwise like mm-hmm. the strangers just our fellow companions who are climbing next to us and that's unfortunate you know it shouldn't be that case you shouldn't let the um you know the the more toxic expressions mm-hmm. of that ruin what you're i think what you're accurately well the uh, what i was i actually kind of got off track with the with the thing about like the non-sprayer being like the ideal what i was going to get at is that this idea that like figuring it out for yourself you know the the pure on-site is the ideal right and i think that yes it may be in parts of climbing outdoors i think more so but and, and maybe like on your first go, but once you've hung, once you've fallen off that fucking route, like it's over. And like, you know, I, I'm I'm of the I'm of the type where I'm just like, what did you do here? Like, right. how did you do this? Like and I think and, and again, like I think that's actually more common of our experience. Yeah. And it's also when everybody talks about like, I love the climbing community. Well, literally that's community. Yeah. You know, so either you're this lone wolf out there just like, I need to be on my own and I need to figure this all out for myself, or you're in a community. And if you're in a community, then that's part of being in a community is that you're like, hey, how did you do this? Where, oh, I didn't see that hole. Thanks. Like, right. That's what I mean by it's like this kind of quote unquote language of love. Yes, it can be this toxic version of that. But I always feel the most part when I just am like watching someone fail over and over again and I'm like biting my tongue because they're just completely missing it. And you just like, I want them to like make the next move and succeed. Yeah. yeah. There's a few levels to what you're talking about. And I think that like what what you're getting at here that's like the purest version of this is that there absolutely is like this objectively right way to do the beta on this boulder problem and someone's just missing missing something that were they to know this information they would be able to do the problem and in those situations to withhold that information is like a kind of really antisocial type of behavior totally. you know that's what i'm getting yeah at, right and to do it for fear that you you know you might offend the person that you're giving this information to is is just a, a a commentary on the dysfunction of our climbing culture where you know there's this real uh like everything's been so therapized or you know like therapy speak with everything like this could be traumatic to them or this could be this like microaggression right. or whatever it is and that none of that's healthy but i think it's also 
to acknowledge that is to you can't ignore the other types of this expression which are maybe not healthy which you know the person which which is like the person who's giving you beta actually doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about (laughs) and that's really frustrating you know i've been on the receiving end of that and someone's like just do it this way just do it this way and you're like no i'm never doing it that way like (laughs) and it might be because i don't like heel hooks or i know i'm not flexible enough to do something that way or i just know that that's wrong like what you're telling me is wrong and that's frustrating that's coming from a place of love perhaps but it's also coming from a place of ignorance you, you know, and so that I, I'm just trying to like paint some nuance into what, what you're saying. And like, I, t- I mean, I totally agree. Yeah. Right. Like it's it, it, I, I just think like we we could, again, like swing the pendulum back a, a bit, like reshift the lanes. Right. You know, where it's not always some attack on your character or your right. climbing ability or a one upsmanship kind of thing or like I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what I think it's it just like, I hear that over and over and over again. And, and obviously each situation is, is, you know, situational, but to me, it's made me feel it's like, it's made me way more tight lipped. And so I can go to the gym and climb around people. And like I said, like never talk to them. And many, many times I've had that feeling where, where I finally like, just let it slip or i'm like all right or you put it in a nice way like hey have you tried it this way or like like this is the way i'm doing it i mean Which, if, but that can yeah. be like but I'm, I'm just saying that can be turned in but so many more times that's that's opened the conversation where they've said no i didn't think of that or yeah i tried that but it, it was too hard for me or like yeah, yeah. I, i'm but then we went on to talk about barbenheimer or whatever it happens to be you know like right it opened the conversation right, right. and I know I've like, I've had that feeling so many times yeah. of like, instead of like, just being like, how you doing? You know? Yeah. It's, it's basically like an, Oh, and I'm not talking about like talking to women versus, versus other. I mean, it's more even other dudes. It's just yeah. like, yeah, let's open this conversation and let's start talking about this thing that we love that we're here to do that we want to excel at climbing. It's, and it's that's it's just what those, we're doing. It's just that that initial icebreaker is often so stilted because mm-hmm. there is these stigmas around. You know, that's what I'm beta. saying. Yeah, we got to reduce the stigma a little bit. Yeah, and, and we know when it's stilted. wrong, and we know when it's presented in a terrible way. Yeah. and I'm not talking about that. Yeah, yeah. But I think we, we're so now. I think I believe this. Like the climbing community in general is is scared of presenting beta to each yeah. other. No, totally. It's like. <laughs> It's like the, it's like, do I have your consent to give you beta on this problem? I mean, maybe you could, maybe we could start doing that. May I ask your consent to give you beta? And if they say no, then you're good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, I- consent. Actually, we're onto something here. I I do, I do say something. I don't say consent, but I do, I I will say like, would you like beta? Like, do you want beta on this? And I think that's a nice way to do it. Like, but right. it does, it does just kind of feel, it's not a natural thing. Like it's not. And it, if, if I could just, if I, I, I want to be just right. like best friends with that person right. and just, just treat them like all my other climbing friends and be like, dude, just try Oh, you got to like grab that yeah, hold yeah. first and then yeah. do this thing. And, but in, instead it's like this like stilted formal, like dance that you have to do. And you gauge the person's like, sure. You know, response to it. And you're like, Oh, 
<laughs> Pardon me. I couldn't help but notice. I couldn't help but notice. That uh, you're not sending right now. <laughs> Care for some beta? Um. <laughs> Why, yes, good sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I found? And I found a little like workaround. As if someone's trying a problem and as you ask them, actually, like, how's that whole hold, hold feel? Like, Ask them, you know, mm. about like, so you're actually soliciting beta in a way. Oh, or how's that hold feel? And then if they're like, that's ah, terrible. Like, oh, have you tried to grab it on the side? Okay. You know, like you, you sort of like put their experience first and then work your beta. Wow, in. that's really manipulative, Chris. I know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a, like, even if it's like you go up and you say, hey, do you want want some beta like that even right now like feels like you're presenting this i don't know like it seems aggressive or whatever it does seem aggressive it's like well what does this guy want from me like right. does he want to date me does he want to you know be my climbing partner for does he want to start a podcast yeah. with me <laughs> what the fuck is going on <laughs> what the fuck is this <laughs> betas can be a gift like it's a gift that you give to your partner totally you save them hours of like banging their head against the wall and right. you just like help them help them out i'm with you so is this the sixth language of love now i mean the situation that i think is is most often presented negatively is man to woman man giving beta to woman and so i i think we maybe missed that perspective and you mentioned that in this is that like how we act with our our bros is is not necessarily indicative of what those people want because the well, other that's thing something we've that talked a lot about, of women don't miss about this is right. that men talk to each other that the exact same right, way right like and it's not like we're that. condescending to you it's well like, we're condescending to everyone yeah yeah it's, it's like, like uh, we always talk about here about like us giving each other shit yeah like that's a language that men a language of love between men right is giving you fucking shit right right and telling you you suck yeah i'm not telling saying to go that far in the gym right but yeah i guess maybe that's a perspective on it yeah um i don't know i i wish that people wouldn't be so uptight about all of this stuff (laughs) i mean i think i think it would just be healthier if you know you could accept accept uh help from strangers right and maybe it leads to like a a new friendship or an interesting conversation and if someone's being you know, either like their intent is good, but they're being a dick, you know, then just ignore that person and you don't need to make a big deal out of right, it. Right. Like move on. Yeah. Just move it on. It was a misfire. Yeah. I mean, if it's truly aggressive and this, and a person won't leave you alone, then that's, uh, that's a whole nother thing. Like, right. and we're not, we're not downplaying that kind of thing, but a, a, a awkward misfire of some beta, like, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. I mean, it's the least, it's not even, it's, yeah, it's the least, it's the smallest straw of the end of the world, actually. <laughs> so, or you could make the switch in your head and you're like, wow, that person is looking out for me, wanting me to succeed. What a wonderful thing to have happened to me today. I'm glowing. I am on top of the world now. And if you don't like it, then just respond in the other romance language and say, no me gusta. (laughs) 
John Middendorf is a mechanical engineer, a gear designer, researcher, writer, and teacher based in Tasmania. He pushed the limits of big wall climbing, adventure, and exploration throughout the 80s and 90s. Most notably, he's responsible for the first ascent of the east face of Great Trango Tower, widely considered the largest and steepest continuous wall in the world at 4,400 feet. Today, he's working on a research project around how gear has influenced the development and progression of climbing. How is August 9th going? The world still is in one piece. There's um, sun's out and, uh, you know, we haven't melted or been blown away by asteroids or volcanoes or nuclear war today. So you guys should be good over there. <laughs> cool. At least till 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> the day is still young. <laughs> Many yeah. things could happen. <laughs> well, John, did I hear you're in Tasmania? Yeah, I live in Tasmania. It's uh, in, just a, in a small uh, village outside of Hobart, the capital city of Tasmania. And uh, just, you know, it's winter now and cold. Uh, but really quite a wonderful place to raise a family and lots yeah, of outdoor stuff to do here. What brought you there in the first place? Well, it was I, I applied for my permanent residency after studying at the University of New South Wales. Right after I was working in the outdoor industry, I, I um, began river guiding, but I needed to, you know, I really felt like I needed to get back into a profession. So I went back to school to study mechanical engineering to get a master's degree and decided I wanted to move to Australia. I just felt like Australia was a pretty sensible place to be, and there are a lot of opportunities. So I got my permanent residency, and uh, but then in the meantime, I met my wife, and she at first didn't really want to move to Australia. So I took her for our honeymoon, traveled around Australia, and of all the places we visited, she loved Tasmania. So when I finally convinced her to move to Australia, on my um, resident visa, it was the agreement that we would move to Tasmania. So, and it really, it's been a great choice, a great choice for raising a family and very mellow here. It's a really laid back place. Nice. You were just in the States. We were trying to catch you while we were here so we didn't have to time travel, but it didn't work, quite work out. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. It sounds like you were, had an awesome trip to the States and uh yeah, tell us about that trip real quick. Oh, it was fantastic. Well, we go every year. That's part of the deal is uh, take the family back to the U.S. to see family. But this year, we got invited on a Grand Canyon River trip with my friend Rob Slack, who used to be my roommate in, in Flagstaff. It was kind of nerve-wracking a little bit because our youngest is Remy, 10 years old. And that's pretty young for a Grand Canyon trip, 16-day trip. But, um, you know, I got in shape. My My son, Rowan, trained me. Did all my uh, upper body strength moves and uh, got strong again. And I, I had River Guide down there for five years, so I knew the I knew the Grand Canyon pretty well. But it'd been what twenty years since I rode a boat, really. But sure enough, you know, I, I rode a boat eighteen footer for the sixteen days and took uh, my family down all the rapids safely. Had some of the best runs I ever had because I tell you what, I was really focused with my ten year old up front. Uh, through Hans and Sockdanger and Lava and all the rapids just had really quite really good runs actually <laughs> so I was happy about that because uh, I was quite nervous about getting back on the bicycle so to speak but yeah it worked out well and it was just a magic trip really although 
it was during that heat wave and uh, we had like 45 degrees centigrade 120 degree heat or something down there uh it was unrelenting actually the heat but you know you have a cold river nearby all the time <clears throat> if you're hot in the grand canyon with the river there you're just being dumb so we we're jumping in <laughs> quite a bit that's true <laughs> Well, yeah, the reason we, uh, you know, have been pursuing you is uh, because of this project that is in process, but, you know, so you you made sort of a big step of, I mean, I guess it was sort of uh, collecting blog posts and putting them out in, in these volumes. Um, it's, uh, it's basically the history of climbing gear to a certain point. And the interesting thing is it's, it's available for free if you want to look at it online. Um, it's also available in book form if, if you want these books. So um, it's kind of a fascinating project to me because looking at it, it seems like this mountain of work. And Two then, years, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then again to like just then hand it to the public. But I guess you'd been handing it to public in a little bit of pieces. So um, I'm being kind of vague because I'm I'm having like a hard time even grasping it all, how it came to fruition. So um, <laughs> can we jump right in and talk about that? And then we'll maybe go back into some of your history that led you up to this uh, this project because you were the guy to do it, um, I think, in climbing. Um, well, thanks, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's always fun to talk to you ever since we did that normal cast. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess uh, <clears throat> somehow I got back into designing climbing gear again around 2017, and I started designing portal edges, and I did that for about three years. I made about 100 portal edges here in Tasmania and sent them all over the world and got some of the best climbers in the world to try it out and test them. And uh, at, at some point I felt like that design was mature, you know, like I'd come up with a bunch of new portal edge shapes and designs. And uh, really it's quite difficult to do a business here in Australia because you're importing the materials and then you're exporting all the product to climbers in Europe and America. And I just got a little bit um, burnt out on on that process. Although I did have a great team of climbers working here. It was just like the old A5 days where I, you know, just invited climbers to come help. They worked whenever part-time they could and sewed up gear. And uh, that was really quite a fun three years. But after I finished that, I was like, okay, what do I do now? Um, And climbing still, you know, it sort of was my reintroduction to climbing because I really haven't really been part of the climbing world since I was actively climbing back in the 90s and 80s and 90s. And so I I thought about this article I'd written for Ascent in 1999 called The Mechanical Advantage. And it was really about the, not just really the history of tools and techniques, but it's really about the, in a way, using modern language, it's kind of about the influencers who pushed these new techniques to create new challenges and new climbs really that's what you know when i think about the design of tools it's really about how you integrate them into the sport of climbing and where that takes you really and how climbing evolves really because of the the tools and i i looked at my 1999 article which was about 20 pages a 20 page article in ascent edited uh by steve roper and uh, Al Steck, and that was a fun experience actually working with him back then. But uh, but I realized how woefully inadequate it was because in this day and age, actually, there's so many more resources for doing history research. 
And by the way, I don't call myself a historian. I call myself a researcher. There's real historians out there. And it's been really fun working with them, like Katie Ives and David Smart and Laura Waterman and, and Chick Scott. You know, So they've written quite great history books. But I always felt like there was a little bit missing in a lot of those histories in terms of how the tools and techniques interplayed with these climbing accomplishments. And uh, as an engineer... I'm always very interested in the design of tools. So, and, uh, and so I started looking into it and I could, you know, go to these old German journals and do immediate Google translate. So, you know, all of a sudden there's all these new resources really in a way of, for a researcher to delve into these primary journals that are now online and also Abe's books, which it used to be, if you wanted to get an old climbing book, um, then you went through, uh, you know, bookseller and you could maybe try to find your book, but now on Abe's books, you can find these old journals and old books for five bucks. And, you know, they're, they're a hundred year old books that are like show all the techniques that they actually were developing back in the 1910s or twenties. And so I expanded my library by a few hundred books and sort of discovered like, wow, there's a lot of missing information here in the history of climbing that nobody's really delved into, you know, because really it's the innovation. I always say like the innovation of a new tool precedes a jump in standards. When you look at climbing from just the, you know, typical history, it's like, oh, it's the accomplishment of the Iger, you know, and then there's the, the Drew and, you know, you look at these routes that were breakthrough climbs, but before all these breakthrough climbs, there's always a, a bit of an innovation jump, and that's that's really what I was looking at. And and not only the jump of innovation, but who were the designers and who were the people who were creating um, the acceptance of these new tools? So, I mean, pitons would be a good example. But um, I'll uh, pause here to uh, see if that all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I think it's really interesting when I was um, reading through those books. There's two volumes. I mean, massive. I, I mean, I, I didn't have a book in my hand, um, which which was a drag because it is it's not as enjoyable to click through the the PDF. But nevertheless, um, looking through there was like th there is this big social aspect to these tools as well, because it was sort of fascinating because, you know, you think about like most other technological advances, let's say computers like, you know, there are some Luddites that weirdos that are like, no, I, I love my Apple IIe, you know, I'm keeping that forever kind of thing. But for the most part, it's all about innovation and getting faster, better, better computers are accepted immediately. And here's climbing where it literally like each advancement is pushed against. Like, I, I feel like almost every single thing from front points on your crampons to, you know, pitons, you mentioned that one as being this big thing. And it's, it's, that makes it a, a kind of this, more fascinating story to me when I was reading through those books is that, yeah, there's always pushbacks. I mean, climbing shoes, sticky rubber, cheating, friends, cheating, pitons, cheating, you know, yeah, ropes cheating, that yeah. don't break and kill you, cheating, you know, it's like, <laughs> like almost everything. I mean, literally ropes, there's, there's pushback against climbing with ropes, you know, so it's, it's kind of wild. I mean, can you sort of expand on, on what you found in that or what, what thoughts you had about the anti sort of gear people that have uh, like literally existed 
I mean, that, that, that guy they found in the ice that maybe had those, like, bone ice axes. Like, his buddies yeah. probably gave him shit for that. Like, oh, you're going out on the ice with those? Like, <laughs> You got a copper axe? Man, you, you got to use stone, man. <laughs> exactly. Stone's the way. Um, yeah, I don't well, climb I think- that using only stone, dude. <laughs> Exactly. I think. Well, I think just human humans are conservative by by nature, and and especially the old guard who's who's they've accomplished something with their style, and they see the young blood come in and and start accomplishing possibly bigger things, but with a different style. It's there's always going to be that pushback. I think it's really important to look at history as a global thing, right? I mean, whenever you read a history book written by the French, you know, it's all the French innovations and the French pioneers and the French best climbers. And it's the same with American history or, or Japanese history or any, you know, European history. This It's very, uh, you know, centric to the nation, nation that's happening. So, you know, it, it, all our climbing today really derives from the Eastern Alps climbing. That's where it really started. And it's interesting because even today, you know, there's a Tita Piaz who's who I just wrote an article that's in the American Alpine Journal about him. But, he, you know, even before that, there, there really hadn't been anything written on him in English. There's just mentions here and there of this fellow Tita Piaz. And he, he was climbing in 1906. You know, 1906, he climbed like one, probably one of the first major big walls that involved a lot of the kind of techniques we consider modern, like tension traverses and using a bit of aid, but also doing some hard free climbing um, and piton protected climbing. Really? He never really seemed to get his due in terms of like what he actually did. He was too far ahead of his time probably uh, because it wasn't until the 1920s that that type of climbing became more mainstream and people realized, well, yeah, we do want to climb these amazing, inspiring walls and faces, but they're suicide unless we use these you know, unless we actually, uh, you know, deign to use these new tools that we initially were disdaining, you know, they're they're pretty necessary for for these kind of ascents. You know, people just gradually understanding the inherent challenges, even with these new tools. But yeah, I do remember, like, even our time, like, uh, you know, when Friends came out, <laughs> there's debates in Mountain. You know, like Friends are no good. You know, who's for and who's against these new camming devices? It all seemed pretty ridiculous to me at the time because it was like, for me, it was like, wow, that's a great engineering solution to the problem of protecting these steep cracks. But yeah, there's there's always resistance. It's interesting. But not only resistance, but also, you know, who gets acknowledged in the development of these things? It's not necessarily the early, the earliest people who are adopting uh, but it's like it comes like a few years later when there's a, there's a sort of a critical mass of objectiveness about what we're really doing out there. And I mean, ultimately, I think it is about seeking spiritual challenge of climbing these mountains. But, you know, how it gets how it gets uh, manifested in, in the debates and public realm, that's always going to be something that will be part of our humanity, I guess. But, but yeah, it's interesting to think about where climbing is going to go next, really, isn't it? Because when you when you look at all these developments now, um, you know how, where will climbing go? It's nobody could say, but it's always interesting to see how how things evolve. 
Yeah, if you've been as you've been talking, I've been thinking just about the mo- more recent climbing history with which I'm more familiar, of course, and um, just trying to pinpoint what technology might be credited for the you know advances in in, in uh, progression in the sport and so forth. And uh, you know, you could make an argument for something as simple as just gyms or you know hang Absolutely, or, yeah. you know something like that as being a uh reaching that critical mass that you just were talking about where it's in an, an, enough cities or enough of the population is access to it at a young enough age where they can progress to a point of maturity at you know 14 or 15 where they can really start to use their strength to to push limits and so forth um, but you you've been focused on the esoterica more of the <laughs> of our history and and some of the gear and the 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 who and the what. But I'm I'm curious about the what actually. Like, is there a certainly something like the transition to from a hemp rope to a nylon rope, um, or you know the introduction of a carabiner or something like that could be credited as an obvious point of of progressing the sport but have you come across something that you felt was just a surprising piece of gear that you wouldn't have foreseen it having the effect that it did if you look at the evolution you know it's first about how to protect steep walls and that became pitons and then you know the idea of like the rope being a dynamic uh, piece of equipment within the system that took a long time for people to understand i mean even though there were engineers saying look we want a spongy rope there were articles in the Alpine Journal saying, oh, this rope is too spongy. You know, it's too... Yeah. Whereas, like, in, in reality, that spongy rope meant it was stretching and that it was absorbing more force. So it was obviously a safer rope. So you see a lot of, like, that kind of thing where people didn't quite understand the, the actual technology and how it could benefit, really because, you know, it came from this sort of Alpine mountain climbing, you know, where you're not really using any gear at all and it's interesting slings for example like slings were a mystery to a lot of the climbers until the 30s and 40s like using slings to reduce rope drag for example but you know what i what i did discover in my research is in colorado they knew that they were using slings to tie up everything and, and you know being out the west where you know people grew up using ropes and tying things up and um you know they they are actually more advanced we have lassos out here, so it must, it's a it's a natural progression from cowboy culture. I mean, I think throughout, like looking at all, all the all the developments, it was I was surprised all the all the way, really. You know, like really, this last two years of doing this research, I was constantly surprised at like where the resistance was and how the engineering kind of came into play and, and who were the you know, the ones who early adopters of the technology, not always the ones who were really doing the hardest climbs necessarily, but the early adopters were probably more responsible for directing the, the, uh, the direction of climbing than the actual, you know, people who, who you read about who did the hardest climbs and so, things like that. So what you're, what so, you, I guess what you're saying is that it's not enough just to have the technology it's and the innovation behind it. There has to be, the person who who shows everyone that the you know it's safe to walk through you know through this door and to and to trust this gear in the way that it's meant to be designed and trusted and so forth i would say that's true yeah i would i would i would agree with that completely i was just thinking about some of the stuff that jumped out you were just talking about the dynamic ropes and the silk ropes 
um, that those existed and uh, but weren't widely used because of cost and also very hard to get. But, you know, it's just kind of wild to do the thought process of thinking like, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll just fall on this rope that's made out of silk, you know, that came yeah. out of worms. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating. And so I, when I, when I saw that one, I started thinking about that and, you know, you see these old black and white pictures and of course, whoever Ellingwood and his like tweed jacket and all that stuff. And it looks so antiquated. It's hard to remember that, you know, these guys were like holding the cutting edge, you know, they were holding the, the, whatever the, the totem cam of the day, like, where'd you get that? Like, oh my God, like that thing. And, you know, to try to do the, the kind of thought experiment where that was brand new and it was the hottest thing. And, and, you know, his tweed jacket was the, was the Patagonia fleece of the day or whatever, you know, it's, it's kind of funny looking through, especially the first volume, um, into the old, that old time, that really old stuff. Um, just to, like I said, remember they were climbers just like us and they were psyched to get their hands on the new thing. If they were cutting edge people like Ellingwood was and, and Herman Boole and those guys, um, you know, they were like, all right, yeah, yeah, this is going to get, you know, this is going to get, get us up our climbs in the hottest, fastest way possible. Um, just like we, we think about it now. Yeah, there's always still this sort of like, you know, being conservative, like when pitons first started coming in, I mean, obviously, you know, it's like, well, we don't use these for aid and we don't use them for going up. We're just using them for roping down, for repelling, basically. And then, you know, slowly but surely, okay, we're going to use them for safety for belays and then, and then it kind of creeps in. Well, we're using them for belay. Well, we could put a pitch in here, or we could just put a, you know, we could put a belay in here, or we could just keep going by and put a piton here instead and keep going. There is sort of a social pressure to to do it a certain way, but you know, that's 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 what my story is really about. Is like who really kind of like extended that social boundary of what what's acceptable. And you know that that's that's what I found it really interesting. It's not the people you 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 know you you might read about in normal histories, but it's 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 different people and and also the people who are in the in the standard histories. You know what they really did might have been something different than just having accomplished a hard climb or two, mm-hmm. which you know what what you read about. It's actually like how they approached climbing and uh, and saw it as as their own personal quest and challenge, and and how that became inspiring to others. You know that's that's really what what I found interesting is like like, like Marion O'Brien, for example. I mean she she's kind of known for a few climbs in the Alps that were alpine climbs, but really she she could see like what she wanted to do was be an acrobat on rock. And she, she knew she needed to learn piton techniques. So she learned from the best who were doing it in the time. And she became by far the best American climber uh, in the 1920s, you know, during her prime. But, you know, you know, mostly her, her history gets condensed into a couple alpine climbs that she did in the Alps. But really, she was actually this brilliant rock climber that was really on the forefront of piton-protected climbing. But pitons, of course, was uh, was still considered dis- disdainful back then. And so she she's very muted in how she, she discusses that. And that's another thing, too, that's interesting, because back then, you know, the, there was the concept of the grade six. Um, you know, not the kind of, not, the, not what we consider 
grade one through six with with the length of big walls but grade six was just the the standard um type of grading like we grade from 510 to 514 now there was grade five which was free climbing and then there was grade six which was a climbing basically and the great walls like the um you know the chima grande and all these big aid walls were all grade six and that was the hot ticket back in the 20s and 30s you know doing these these aid routes because that was the new thing but you know meanwhile you had Miriam o'brien who wasn't really climbing these grade sixes the highest number on the on the grading scale but she was like one of the best grade five plus climbers which was you know basically that's equivalent to like five eight five nine climbing um, and so a lot of times history is focused on the numbers and what was the hardest number at the time. And uh, in this case, it, it's completely irrelevant, you know, in terms of like what kind of challenges people were. I mean, because really those kind of Chima Grande walls um, where they're using a lot of aid were completely different than these bold free climbs that were also happening during that era. When did that distinction start to become more salient to the climbing world? You mean in terms of like the difference between aid climbing and free climbing? Yeah. When did people start to notice that there is this distinction between what they were doing in, in a way that was one might be pursued on its own merits and uh, versus the other? Yeah, I would say, you know, 70s really. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be like 60s, 70s when free climbing and then clean climbing kind of helped that, mm-hmm. to, you know, the bold kind of early free climbing that sort of distinguished itself from the general kind of mixed sort of free and aid climbing that was happening right throughout the that makes sense to me too i I was just curious if there might have been some earlier earlier moment that i wasn't aware of well that's what that's what i found mary so interesting is because you know she was really a pure free climber she loved that kind of gymnastic free climbing and um but yet, as I say, you know, like when, when you look at her record, it's, it's it's like a couple alpine climbs, which were not the gymnastic kind of rock climbs that she she had accomplished at her peak. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're different sort of recognitions of, of her uh, career, you know. What you'll find in my book, I hardly ever discuss a grade because it's impossible to compare like what was 5.8 back then with... I mean, back in the, even in the thirties, the hammer and the chipping a hold to, to make the climb go easier was like a standard technique. So any numbers that you compare between arrows don't really make any sense, but I try to like describe the, the challenge and the accomplishment of, of what people are doing without using numbers, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that's actually <laughs> a little bit challenging because you really do want to compare sometimes, but. I mean, for example, you know, what was happening in Europe in the 1920s, you know, the hardest climb in the U.S. was like the ones on Long's Peak, Alexander's Chimney and the Setner Route. But they they were not cutting edge compared to what was happening in Europe at the time. So it's always difficult, tricky to compare by the numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's important to understand the tools and technology, too, because that really is key to how... The, the the type of accomplishment people were doing over the eras of climbing. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Have you gotten as far as into sort of modern free climbing um, in the second volume? Um, no, no. I, yeah, I, yeah. The second volume, so, I, mean, I, yeah. I cover a bit of the, you know, expedition gear that was starting mm-hmm. to come online. And uh, because that relates 
to to like how big walls were eventually climbed and i you know get into the whole there's a there was quite a community era in the 50s with all the people developing new pitons but yeah the, the next challenge is volume three is going to be quite a challenge one is because that history has already been well documented and written so mm-hmm. it's not as fun to discover all these new things as i could with volumes one and two but also i mean that's it's also a tricky era to describe too because it's still sort of not quite settled history of what is how how things evolved in a way you know mm-hmm. well it's just interesting that you you were talking about you know these tools preceding these changes um and that Jumps i think standard, yeah yeah this this will be i mean it'll be kind of fascinating because you know free climbing required um either required technology or did the technology kind of help advance it because i mean one of the big things obviously were chalks nuts and in getting the hammer out of your hands you know so to speak and and i think it's sort of lost that that was like this big advancement of free climbing because if anybody's ever tried to free climb pounding in pins you and i are big wall climbers and it's like you know you you'll you'll hit a section that's like five, eight. And, and I don't know if you've been guilty of this, but you'll freaking aid climb it. Cause you're, you're not going to like stop aid climbing or whatever, be because you got all the shit on. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it might be quicker, but you know what I mean? It's like hard to, it's hard to keep going with the gear that's designed for, for aid climbing. Plus you got 90 pounds on your rack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it'll be interesting to, to kind of really delve into that, that push and pull between, what came first, you know, like the desire to free climb and then the gear caught up or was the gear there? And that's what pushed, um, this desire, because I think you're right. It was, you know, it was like, a maybe starting in the early sixties, but really the big push came in the late sixties and seventies. And especially like in places like Yosemite. Yeah. I mean, I guess my premise is innovation always precedes that those jumps and standards. And once the innovation starts to trickle in, then the envisioning, develops you know and mm-hmm. so people aren't really going to push themselves on a bold ground up free climb and until there's some sort of way to envision it the tools develop for the standard that's at the time really but then they get envisioned as a way mm-hmm. to jump to that next level i mean that's i think that's my premise i i would argue that like the innovation always precedes those jumps and standards mm-hmm. you know and how you use the tools too you know, that's what's going to be tricky about Volume 3 because I think, you know, my whole era, I grew up in the ground-up ethic, right? That's That was it. You know, that you, you climb ground-up and then that involved climbing boulder, really. And so you're, you know, to, to do ground-up climbing, you have to learn how to climb bold and, and unprotected and go for it. And, and basically soloing became part of the routine of training and, 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 and trying to, like, figure out, like, what kind of gear you can put in with one, you know, fingertip on a, on a crazy hold and trying to get the right piece in that two seconds that you can keep holding on. You know, and that all kind of got eliminated once um, the acceptance of, you know, top-down kind of bolted climbing. So in a way, you know, the the, the climbing now is, is almost technology-free, really. I mean, really, when you think about all these hard sport climbs, 
the 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 accomplishment is the gymnastic movement of these super hard climbs. They might as well be top roped in a way because the you know the bolts are just placed put in to to make it so you don't die on the climb. But you know really the mastery is of the climbing moves, and so in a way you know like less dependence on technology today, even though we're you know millions of bolts have been put in in the last couple of decades. But I do think there is, you know, there will be, I mean, there obviously are like incredibly talented alpinists who are going out in the mountains and, uh, you know, they still need tools and, and um, you know, the best lightweight climbing tools to, to accomplish their objectives. And I do think that, you know, there'll be a swing back to that. And, and then that'll be impetuous to, to, to design, create even more lightweight technology that can help that and i do think there will be developments there and more advancements there but you know right now we're in a state of looking at the what's humanly possible like how you know in terms of numbers and that's that's a worthy objective in itself but i do think that the mountains will definitely become kind of the 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 focus again um and they are. I mean, obviously they are. But you know, and then you have obviously the the big mountain game. It's just like you know, Lido wrote about in the '60s. I mean, there's so many games now, and you know, this recent um, <clears throat> link up of all the 14 highest peaks in the world in less in about three months. I mean, incredible achievement, but obviously highly dependent on technology in terms of getting helicopter access and and. Uh, so where where is the line? Yeah, perha- that, perhaps you know? the the perhaps the most advanced climbing tool of all time, a turbojet uh, helicopter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what happens when the drones can go up? To oh, that friend is neat. Feet. That little that little camera device is pretty cool. But check out what I got. <laughs> yeah, and these you know maybe there's going to be a personal drone that you can fly up to thirty thousand right. feet and, and, and drop you know, your shit up there. Yeah, that's yeah, that's for sure. Carry next. on your backpack, the, and maybe you'll yeah. have to climb up, and then you can ride it down. Yeah, yeah. but. You know, obviously, I think. Well, I don't think forget is... Captain Kirk or uh, Spock's jet boots. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. in, in the Star Trek movie, yeah. So those are coming too. The jet boots. <laughs> That's a, the, best, the best that, way to break know, trail in the snow is just blast it with rocket fuel with your yeah, with your, your jet boots, your jet boots. <laughs> and melt it. Yep. <laughs> but I mean, you know, in a way, like climb, all climbers are looking for that kind of transparent. You know, relationship with their equipment. You know, really climbing with a rack of quick draws and a eighty meter, you know, nine mil rope is a beautiful way to climb. You can, you know, go anywhere in the world now and and climb for months and months, like in Greece or in Thailand, with just such a lightweight kit. But I do feel like um, there is going to be that trend in the mountains too, where you want to go with less and less to do more and more, really. You know, in that. And so I do think there's a lot of room for innovation in that realm, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, I, I mentioned this again, this like pushback that it comes with with these tools and climbing. And, you know, this ideal, you just kind of hinted at it, you know, the lightest possible, you know, freedom of movement. It's, it's interesting how that's also lasted through the ages. And and I think we still have it, you know, and, and maybe, you know, the free soul thing brought it to the fore again is... Yeah. I read some blurb and it was from some, it was more in the bolt era. Cause that's been a, you know, that's always been this huge 
very deep debate and climbing that's continued for 50 years or whatever. In some of the early bolt, I think it was one of the guys that was on Shiprock maybe or something, but he, he was like, yeah, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, you know, you can do what you do. You're naked, you know, naked free solo ascent, yeah. you know, was Robinson, almost, yeah. almost verbatim what he said. And it's like, yeah. shit, I still see that on like Instagram, like the ultimate ascent is the, the naked free solo. So it's, yeah. and that was from like 70 years ago, you know, this, this guy's blurb. So it was just fascinating that we still have this sort of fidelity to that in the back of our minds. Climbing still does, I think, even as advanced as it is and, you know, as pedestrian as sort of climbing in the gym is and stuff. There's within the core, there's still this idea that simple is better, lightweight's better, a person moving without the encumberment of technology is better. Even even as we advance further and further away from that. It's like this weird archetype or th- something that we have in our in our climbing genes to think about that all the time, um, which is maybe the basis of the pushback against the new technology. Um, no, I think it's naked, true. And the naked it's free a- solo still exists in this in this well, like capsule somewhere as the prime example of climbing or whatever. Yeah, it's the idea of exploration. You're going someplace you haven't seen it. You're you know you're starting from the ground and and you're going up with a minimal amount. You know that's I think that is still you know even though today's hardest routes are practiced and 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 done extensively with with a lot of work to get to the to to accomplish them. But I do think that whole idea of like the flash is still you know that's in our nature to like mm-hmm. want to just be able to go someplace and and test our skills without a lot of um, rigmarole to to do that right that's yeah i mean i think that is the most exciting way to climb and and, and most climbers even if they do mostly do practice climbs they, they do you know desire to go out there and fire that hardest thing so in your research of um, how climbing gear is kind of pushed and progressed the sport, have you found examples of bad gear that have regressed the sport or have been just utter failures? <laughs> like in terms well, of, I guess one way to ask that is just what's the worst piece of climbing gear that's ever been made, but um, that might be too clickbaity. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd love to just know if, if there's any historical examples that come to mind, and maybe if you want to take a take a swipe at a, have, at a particularly a too. <laughs> terrible piece of climbing gear. Um, I know everyone well, would love to hear that too. When you look at even just stuff that was designed through the '70s and '80s and '90s, you know, when 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 it was all about like finding those that perfect gear. I mean, there's so many examples of just junk that was being created, and you know, if you look at uh, the Nuts Museum in Corsica. Uh, Stefan's collection, incredible collection of, of clean climbing tools. A lot of those, I mean, you might look at them and say, oh, it's just another piece of gear. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that didn't work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that people spent a lot of time patenting and uh, arranging manufacture and produced quite a bit and, and just never worked, you know, <laughs> and people could tell that right away. But yet, you know, it was still being pushed through the industry. So, that's that's always been amusing to me all the different types of cams and different things that people tried but i mean that's that's really how you know obviously that was in hyperdrive in in previous decades because there's a big market but i mean that's really when you go back even to the 1890s and 1910s i mean there's a lot of equipment that was being tried that was um you know didn't really pan out and uh, i mean but that's part of the process isn't it like 
there's there's a lot of failures on the way to success in any uh, kind of innovation. But it is funny to see the people who are sticklers for like some technology that didn't really work too well. Um, I mean, I guess the, the the stiff ropes would be a good example of that. Like there were just advocates for like you want a good stiff rope, you don't want this spongy rope. Um, whereas like you know, since the engineers were realizing like actually I like this spongy rope; it's keeping me safer. <laughs> you know, and uh, and these are just like footnotes, and sometimes in the journals, like of somebody who understands the, the engineering aspects, or versus the mainstream, which was all about like you know these, and and there was a commercial these are, these are aspect people, back then. People who existed two hundred years after Isaac Newton, and yet still <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Grass. You know, it's funny though. It's like you get any of those old pieces of gear and there's, there's going to be like somebody, maybe it's Gary Neptune. I don't know, but <laughs> who's like, who's going to like go to the mat for the rock and roller, like, or, or the, the Teton, you know, that was another one um, yeah. that kind of came and went or whatever. Like there, there, there's somebody who's still got a rack of rock and rollers that <laughs> brings them to the crag. And it's like, you know, your, your cams are lame. Like I'm using these, you guys remember rock and rollers. I mean, I'm oh, sure yeah, you definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I have, I don't, I have but no they, they were kind is. of like, you know, they were kind of an important step actually right, you know, in right. a way, you know, that they actually demonstrated what, you know, maybe not an ideal solution, but it was mm. like, oh, why doesn't that work? And how could that actually be improved? You know, I believed in Forrest. I mean, I saw his catalog mm -hmm. and he was equal standing in, you know, it was Chenard and Forrest really that produced catalogs that actually had some information. And I tried so many times to place my Tetons, you know, <laughs> and I carried them for years and years, you know. <laughs> and maybe I found one or two good placements. But uh, yeah, it was just like that. It's like, I believe in these. They were going to work right. somewhere. You know? <laughs> well, he was, I feel like uh, Bill was like a, a definitely a spitball guy, you know, like I'm going to throw a lot of things at the wall and produce them and see what happens, you know, like. Um, which you got to respect as well, as long as nobody's getting killed, you know, but, but he seemed to be way more of that kind of guy and he'll go out and test it himself and, and see what happens and things yeah, like that. And he so definitely he was came a really up fascinating with great, individual. Yeah. He definitely had some good, good innovations that, I mean, they were all stepping stones too. A lot of, a lot of yeah. stuff he made single point. Well, let damage. me ask you this, this might be an embarrassing question for you, but um, you know, as far as modern wall climbing, you yourself I think is an innovator in many ways. Um, you know, A5 equipment is is still legendary. Um, you were sort of, I don't know, you were, at, you were at kind of this, you know, right place, right time to start producing gear. You had the knowledge, the skill. I, went, um, I had to get gear ready for you, Chris. Yeah, exactly. Because right. I knew there was a whole new generation coming online and they needed <laughs> to get gear that they weren't going to get rescued on Half Dome. Yeah. And they needed to survive. And so, <laughs> Let me ask you that. I mean, I don't know if you're willing to kind of like toot your own horn, but you know, again, A5 was legendary. There's, I can name some equipment. I just want to hear what you say um, about like your innovations. I mean, your ledges were extraordinary. Um, you had pitons that were extraordinary. Um, what else was going on at A5 that you that you can look back on and say like, if someone else is writing this book, there's going to be a chapter on on John Middendorf, even if you don't do it about yourself. Well, I would say, you know, I, I actually have influenced a lot of designs like the hauling pulleys, you know, the, like there were a couple of hauling pulley designs going around. And uh, I kind of came up with the concept of, of using the, the swinging arm with the cam below, you know, that, as opposed to a cam pushing against the actual wheel. 
I mean, drill holders, you know, just, ex- you know, understanding like that bird beak that Bridwell started to use by using cutoff cracking ups. He went to a bunch of other companies and they were like, oh, we don't want to make those. And and I said, wow, that does, you know, I, I could see that was going to be a great boon to egg climbers. And, you know, we were making for two or three years before we had any competition because it took that long for, for the rest of the climbing community to understand like that is, you know, the, the useful tool. I was talking to Wojtek Kurtika in the course of my research because that's where hooking pitons were developed, you know, in the Czech and 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 in Poland and Czechoslovakia up in the in the ranges there. And uh, you know, he he says that throughout the seventies, you know, he just thought we were geniuses to be able to climb as hard as we could without any sort of hooking piton, because they were using them since the forties mm-hmm. there. And I was like, <laughs> we weren't geniuses; we were just completely ignorant of what kind of technology, uh, you know. It, and I think people had seen those hooking pitons, but nobody sort of, you know, could see that how they were going to change the game. And I really, you know, I think those, I mean, we call them pitons, but really, you know, they're, they're, they're hooks that you can hand place and, and just tap in and, you know, much less rock destruction for, for climbing, um, protecting steep seams. But, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I was kind of involved with a lot of different, uh, you know, I helped Rock Exotica get started with his companies, and I, I've I've helped a lot of different uh, small businesses get started with making cams and you know the, the little three cam units. You know, I was helping Steve Byrne sort of improve those with like you know different ways that that could be configured. You know, Portal Edges is really where I was able to contribute because uh, there wasn't really a weatherproof portal edge before the A5 ones that you could really withstand any kind of conditions in the Himalaya. You know, for me, the, the, the reason I wanted to do that was not uh, so people could just withstand storms in El Cap, but I knew, like, the next level of wall climbing, the, the dream of, like, taking these, these wall climbing techniques to the bigger ranges, you, you really needed something where you you weren't going to just need to retreat if you got caught in a storm. You need to be able to push through those storms. You know, because the Gramici ledge only weighed about eight or nine pounds, and it had this super light ripstop fly, and the frame was barely, you know, could hold 200 pounds, but not much more. You know, and, and I just, I knew that to, to take it to the next level, you need to add a little bit of weight. And so, but we were able to just add like three or four pounds to make the super bomber portal edge that you could withstand any kind of storm but you know the vision i guess was that not to create a a new shelter necessarily but to create a shelter that would enable this next standard of big wall climbing to take place which is where you need to you know you're going to get weather so you need to be able to survive it and keep going that's that was the objective and so and that, that was the motivation for creating the better portal edge i guess um, yeah, I, lo- I love how it was like the, the fact that that aid climbing is so goddamn slow um, was what innovated your uh, your need for like a freaking portal edge I'm like, that could last, you know, like we're not we're, we're going to be up there. I mean, I don't care how good your forecast is. We're going to be up there still when that storm hits. I don't care if it's a month from now. Um, so I just think that's funny because I, you know, as a guy who inched his way up, you know, up El Cap placement by placement over days and weeks i'm like yeah you need to be able to just sit it out because you ain't going any faster you know it's not like you can rush up that next day four pitch 
yeah. you know, to get to get out of the weather, you know. It was fun 10 years there from 87 to 97 making gear and then <clears throat> and then, you know, actually transferring my assets to North Face and 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 getting some money from that. That was good too and working as a senior product manager for North Face mm-hmm. was it was a great experience because for 2 years I had carte blanche. I had like a huge budget to create my own shop and I had whereas before I was like trying to convince these, you know, breathable fabric manufacturers to sell me a few yards of their stuff. And then at, at North, as a senior product manager, you know, they're coming to me, they're flying out to San Leandro to talk to me about like, you know, getting their materials in our line. And so, you know, for a few years there, I was really able to to push some cutting edge stuff. We made the first like waterproof packs. You know, nobody was making waterproof backpacks back then. And now, you know, there's hundreds of designs and, and even like the side door tent, you know, the, just different things that were fun to tinker with. And then was it cool to, was it cool to like pipeline that stuff to your, to your friends and and people who were out there doing it? I mean, that must've been the best part, right? That is just being like, yeah, we need this tested. Let's do it. Go on a trip. Here's some money. (laughs) Well, Cam Burns just wrote an article in powder magazine about that shot of the three portal edges in Baffin Island, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I, and I realized, like, well, that shot, you know, not only designed those portal edges, but also I designed that tripod that put Gordon out in the in where he could get that shot. So it's always fun just to think about, like, how, uh, you know, things become, uh, you know, they, they capture the public's imagination in a way. But, oh, yeah, you know, portal that, edges I, totally do. But that, yeah, portal yeah, edges they, like change. I mean, people freak out about portal edges, no matter what, where you show them. If you show those to like non climbers, that's like what yeah. they want to find out about is a freaking portal edge. Sleep I mean, in the dawn place. wall or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that, that was kind of fun. Just get, I feel like I was a bit of moth to the flame because I know there's not really any way to make money in climbing unless you, you know, go big and get, you know, create a brand and then, and then leverage it to go big, which I failed to do with my business by selling the assets. But I knew I wasn't going to do that because I'm, you know, raising a family. I was actually teaching most of the time too, when I was developing those poor ledges in my recent 2017 to 2020 spurt of design there. But, you know, it was just fun to build them and then get them out to all my friends and, you know, the best climbers in the world and, and, uh, you know, get them just to see them in these wild places, really, and how people are using them, and that that's well, look. There, there's that's there's the a lot part. of dirt. There's a lot of dirt bags that owe their best years to you and Hurricane, you know, or Hurricane um, coming through your shop, working for you, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it was a real hub. You know, it was like you know, for a lot of people, it was almost like a pilgrimage to get over to your shop if you were into that type of climbing. So, it's fun, um, yeah. you know, that matters too. And, <laughs> and it may not have paid very well, but it, it still matters. Yeah, it was, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's just fun to be part of that community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, John, we'd be remiss not to um, ask you in this podcast about climbing gear history uh, to make some predictions on where we go next. Um, what's your sense on where the you know the big holes are in terms of how to make progression in climbing in terms of, from a gear perspective like what advances do you foresee either coming imminently or could you just imagine in your wildest dreams 
I don't feel like I'm qualified actually to predict because looking at the history, nobody was predicting how things would turn out. But I do think that, you know, the whole kind of ground up Alpine mountain, I mean, obviously now there, there's incredible push for these, you know, there's a team, American team that's, I'm not sure if they're back yet, but they're doing Alpine routes on Janu, you know, on the North face of Janu. But there's still the kind of wall faces too that, you know, that that was pretty big in the 90s, like going and just do the big faces like, well, Great Trango and the North Face of Nameless Tower and Polish Sunspire and all these amazing routes that, that the people in the 90s were climbing. You know, where they were technical routes. And and I think, you know, what happened in the in the 90s when 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 basically bolted sport routes became much more acceptable is there was like a, a diminishment of the kind of refinement of that natural gear that you could place like for example like the just the tiny nuts that you could put into seams you know that that's sort of been all consolidated in there you know the besides the totems that you know that kind of innovation has sort of slowed i think in terms of that kind of the, the kind of lightweight natural gear that you can place for natural cracks so i do think that that might come back but i you know i just feel like there will be a swing back towards like going into the mountains and doing the most technical routes that require, you know, badass ice climbing, free climbing and a climbing skills and doing them in really efficient, fast times. But I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be technically challenging enough that they won't be the type of Alpine climbs that you can climb in a few days. You know, they're going to be technically requiring more than that so I, I i think just the you know i mean i think i, I always think it's like the human endeavor like the, the ability for humans to suffer that and, and to improve their own skills will always be the primary driver but at the same time the the kind of lighter weight ground up tools let's call them it probably will be material based it'll be like lighter materials and and you know seven mil ropes that are fully dynamic and cut resistant and things like that that might actually change the game a bit for the uh like you're saying to evolve things well i was, I was hoping you would say helicopters but that was a great answer too you know, drones, there might be some personal drone that can get you anywhere. You know, there's, there's already these race car drones that will drive you around for 20 minutes and, and uh, chop people's heads off if, you, if you're not steering correctly. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you know, there's... But I, I think ultimately, no, I, I mean, I, I guess I would say I think the technology will be the non-motorized type, you know, the, the technology that really will, because obviously with, with, with motorized technology, then you can, I mean, you can really fly helicopters up to the top of Everest now almost. So how does that game evolve if, you know, if you're taking helicopters to camp two, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, like, well, why not go to camp three then, you know, or why not just go to the top and fly the 14 highest summits and we'll go to the 15th highest summit too, just for fun. Uh, but, you know, so I, I do think that there will be that trend towards less uh, of that kind of technology, you know, where you're actually, I've been working with the forest folks here to preserve some of these um, natural forests here in Tasmania. It's one of the largest temperate rainforests here, and it's just getting chopped. You know, and there's really no protection for the tarkine. 
so they they were always going in with these big giant pieces of plywood to set up these aerial protests and um, it required like a whole huge team and and so it's been fun to help them because basically i you know i tested it myself i can go with one pack and you always have a, another you know it's always a team of two to go in for these aerial protests and um, they call them the possum the person on the ground or the possum's the one up in the tree and then you have your um your, your person on the ground who's always looking out for you. But, you know, like we were able to just go in with just what's on our backs. Um, with one pack, we had a pneumatic um, beanbag shooter that we could sling a branch 40 meters up, you know, get the rope up there, set up the portage, get up there. Everything only took a few hours to set up a whole aerial protest. So that kind of, uh, you know, the transition from might take you know overnight six hours seven hours and a team of seven or eight people set up an aerial protest you know now you can do it with a couple hours of two people all with self-contained with stuff on your back so i think that's what's fun is like going with minimal being a minimalist really and i think that that's also applies to how climbing will evolve it'll go more and more minimalist and it'll get back to ground up kind of mountain objectives that you know get ever more technical and uh you know just the, the skill level of climbers today is blows me away every time i it's so amazing to see like what people are actually able to accomplish um and and so that using that skill level in in combined with new technology you know that's that's where it'll go in the future i think less practice really and just going more for you know going and minimalistically accomplishing some incredible objective that is blows everyone's mind but also you know pushes your own standards of ability so john where can uh where can we find your work why don't you tell us your sub stack and website and and where you're doing all this great work that you're doing that you're just giving away by the way <laughs> which well, is amazing it- but <laughs> I call it open source. I, I just believe oh, yeah. in the whole open source idea. I think that that is sort of a benefit to humanity if we if we were all open source kind of mindsets, because collaboration is really where innovation happens. You know, when we collaborate, we 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 all get better. So, BigWalls.net is a site that it was one of the early climbing sites on the internet, and uh, that's still going. Uh, it was stagnant for about twenty years, but I've been uploading it with tons of information and uh, that's where you can download the pdfs of all the research i was doing on the history uh, volume one and volume two of mechanical advantage tools for the wild vertical it's also uh on substack uh bigwallgear.com but that's probably temporary but bigwalls.net i i will maintain in the long term and that's sort of the repository for all the things i have learned about big wall climbing that i like to share and uh, hopefully helps others uh you know learn about climbing and and perhaps uh inspire to follow their own dreams Today's final bit is some buddy spray from Andres Santiago out of New Jersey. If you have a buddy who's sending the gnar in climbing or in life and you'd like to spray about your friend, join us on Patreon for information on how to submit your buddy spray. And to share our gratitude for those who care more about building up their buddies than taking down the gnar, we're sending Andres a Yeti water bottle. If you want to participate in buddy spray, 
Just go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and sign up to support the show. You'll get bonus episodes and other perks like this. Be a buddy. Patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Mr. Calouse, Mr. Bisharat, thanks for giving me the opportunity to spray a bit. Uh, wanted to take this time to nominate and spray about my gal, my fiance, named Samantha. We met climbing and all that indoors. She's, you know, been climbing in a gym a bunch and always wants to go outside, always wants to go on adventures. And the more and more she does it, the more and more she is, you know, stoked to do more as it happens. But this particular weekend, we went up to Rumney over in New Hampshire and I led a bunch of routes, nothing crazy, some moderate eights and nines, but Samantha's always struggled with like some headspace and commitment as far as like, you know, trusting her abilities and her strength and everything. So, you know, I left all the draws up and kind of very lightly motivated her and reassured her that she would be good to go. And, you know, the anchors and all that stuff was bomber. And yeah, she, she led some, some pretty cool stuff over in Romney and yeah, I'm just stoked that she's getting out and like the vision of herself has come to fruition and she's kind of ascending and being a little badass over there and that helps motivate me to try some harder stuff too so yeah just wanted to spray um i hope this makes it on so she can get wicked embarrassed but yeah thanks again gents appreciate it have a good one You've just reached the end of another Patreon episode of The Runout. If you're receiving your runout fix through the Patreon feed, it means that you've decided to live your days as a giver and supporter, which is a beautiful attitude that will lift your spirits and draw an admiring eye from your peers and loved ones. For this, we commend you because we wouldn't be able to do this without your contribution. Kudos and Mazel Tov. And if you'd like to reach out with questions, concerns, praise, or criticism, or even contribute some content to Buddy Spray or The Final Bit. Email Andrew at Andrew at RunOutPodcast.com or Chris at Chris at RunOutPodcast.com. Although, let's face it, emailing Andrew is probably a better bet. Mm-hmm.